1: You're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and I'm speaking with Heather Engel, CEO of the Las Vegas Rescue Mission. Heather, thank you so much for being here today.
2: Thank you so much for
1: having me. So for those who aren't familiar, what is the Las Vegas Rescue Mission?
2: It is so many amazing things. It's like its own little city. So here at the Las Vegas Rescue Mission, we have a full recovery program. I myself am in long-term recovery and that's kind of how I found my way here. So it's always important for me to identify that. And we have a recovery program for men and women and it is a long-term inpatient recovery program. We have overnight shelter for um, men and women, for single women and children, single men and children. We also have an intact family program that we run with the county and we're the only agency currently doing that and what that means is how people come in and, in a homeless state we are able to house them together and not have to separate them to different dorms and that's however they identify it could be a traditional family it could be a mom mom a dad dad best friends close friends however they identify we try to house them together and work at the things that are kind of keeping the homeless we have a thrift store that is amazing and that is open. I think we're open five days a week on that right now. It's amazing. We also serve about a thousand meals a day. So we have our community meal at five o'clock and that is serving a homeless population, low income, people just needing help. And we we didn't even miss a day serving people during the pandemic. Wow. So we've got a lot of different things that are going on here.
1: Yeah, that sounds fantastic. So when was the mission started
2: the mission was started in 1970. It's an honor to be here because of that. And what, what I mean by that is how it's evolved and how it's grown. We are a Christian organization. An incredible man, Pastor Compton and his wife, started the rescue mission actually just by making sandwiches on the street corner over here. And so everything that we get to work in and be a part of now started from that space. Him just wanting to help people.
1: Nice, okay. So it sounds like a really large facility, but besides that, what hole or void would you say it fills in the Las Vegas Valley?
2: Well, I think that, you know, if all the nonprofits stopped doing what we're doing, the city would probably collapse within itself. Mm -hmm. Every nonprofit does. We all do the things that are absolutely integral to the human being, as it were. And I can't say that we're filling a void too much as that we, we're here to, you know, add our ourselves to the community. Right now, with the increase in population of people moving here at such a rapid rate, there's so many different factors that come with that. And we already have a lot of those factors going on right now. Homelessness, people losing jobs, pandemics, things like that happening that happened to people that really haven't experienced anything, maybe um, unsettling in their life, are now experiencing unsettling things. So I would say what we're offering is 100% feeding people, you know, every single night that we can do, but also bringing them in, in, in the homeless state, if they're willing to look at the things that are keeping them homeless, and they're, that's kind of where they're at, then we bring them in and we start working with them and getting them ready to be placed into permanency and we follow up with them you know, to stay in permanency and help them get jobs and get their feet you know, back going so that we can hopefully stop some recidivism.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. What is the current capital campaign fundraising initiative that you have going on?
2: That is where I live is <laughs> in the capital campaign. I am 100% there. So um, I've been developing for five years and you know, a couple of years, and they're really, really getting into, you know, what does this look like? Our buildings are falling apart. Some of them are very, very old and equated. And, you know, we just need more. We need more everything here. The maintenance and repairs alone, you know, it's just constant. And so we had to look at what is our solution for that. And the solution is to, to rebuild the mission. And what that's going to look like is We'll be doing about three new buildings. We'll be tearing down and putting up three new buildings. Phase one is the shelter of hope, our clinic, which we have, which is amazing, and intake and security. And that's 12 million. The whole campaign is 25 million. So we'll be rehabbing some buildings, building other new, you know, buildings, and like rehabbing our kitchen and dining services and building a whole different thrift store. Right now I have ninety-eight recovery beds for men and i only have 24 for women. and so there's a huge disparity in that. The phase 1 with the shelter of hope will bring on 118 new beds, office space and you know along with this comes better technology and the things that are going to take us, you know, into the current times as it were. And mm-hmm. so it is absolutely dire that we start this process, so you know that we get this built. We have everything done as far as everything you need to be done. We have an incredible attorney who also sits on my board, who's um, handling all of our zoning issues. And now, you know, that's kind of buttoned up and done. And now we're putting an entitlement package in, so that's kind of happening. We have EVNA Advanced Associates as our architect, and right now, what we need is the big dollar donors to come to come forward.
1: Okay, so twenty-five million dollars to rebuild and improve the mission. How exactly are you raising those funds?
2: Well, it's, <laughs> it's a process. I have a, a campaign manager and, uh, you know, we've just, you know, we set goals and we set standards and we, we figure it's just a big chess game is what it is. And we're getting, we have a little committee together where people are bringing, you know, bring us up to referrals and to people that we maybe not normally would be able to reach. And so we're doing it in a myriad of ways. And we've done pretty good in the last two years. It's, it's now is kind of the time to really get in front of the people that can write some big, bigger checks for us.
1: Yeah. Okay. So where can people go if they want to find out more about the Las Vegas Rescue Mission or if they want to donate to the Capital Campaign or if they want to volunteer and help you out with all that activity that you have going on?
2: I'm glad you brought up the volunteers. Absolutely. So uh, VegasRescue.org is our website. And for the capital campaign, you would drop to the, the tab, get involved. And from there, it'll take you to the tab to the capital campaign where you can watch the tour of it and see what buildings are going to look like and you know, naming rights and things like that. I am currently working on its own individual website, which hopefully we'll have that up by the end of the month. And for volunteers, you'd click the same thing, VegasRescue.org, go to Get Involved, and then you'll see the Volunteer tab. And on that, you're going to fill out a profile under Volunteer Hub, and it will open up all of the volunteer slots that are open. That is crucial for us. It takes 18 people outside of Mm -hmm. our staff and residents that live here to put that 5 o'clock meal on every day. And so we are really, really needing people to show up for that. So we would be thrilled if people signed up to be a volunteer for us.
1: Okay, perfect. So once again, the website is vegasrescue.org, vegasrescue.org for the Las Vegas Rescue Mission. If you want to donate to the capital campaign, they are completely rebuilding the whole mission You'd go to Get Involved and then choose Capital Campaign and you can donate there. If you want to help out as a volunteer, they need a lot of volunteers there every day as well. So get involved and then click on Volunteer. So again, VegasRescue.org is the website. And Heather, I want to thank you so much for being here and letting everyone know what you guys are doing in the Valley, contributing to the community, as well as the help that you need to continue doing what you're doing and to do it on a bigger and better scale. So I really appreciate you being here and sharing this with us. And I wish you the best of luck in the capital campaign.
2: Thank you. Thank you for taking the time with me today. I really, really appreciate
1: it. My dad, he's a double amputee,
3: and uh, he's one of my favorite people in the world. To me, a hero is someone who fights for our country and freedom. My dad is a hero. I was for our troops, built this house, and it's basically
1: made for him. My dad can get through the wide doorways. When he is making our lunch, he can reach anything we need. He'll help me build tiny
3: projects. Life is good here. Without Homes for Our Troops, we'd be living in a home that didn't have all these features that helped him.
4: Homes for
2: Our Troops builds and donates specially adapted custom homes nationwide for severely injured post 9-11 veterans and enables them to rebuild their lives.
1: If they get a new house like this one, it'll help them like do normal life. My dad's not just a hero, he's my hero.
2: Join our mission at hfotusa.org.
1: This is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and I'm speaking with Amelia Keegan, Associate General Secretary for the Friends Committee on National Legislation, or FCNL. The FCNL is currently urging Congress to lift the federal borrowing limit without conditions. Amelia, thank you so much for being here today.
5: Thanks. It's great to be chatting with you.
1: So what exactly is the Friends Committee on National Legislation?
5: The Friends Committee on National Legislation, or FCNL, is a grassroots advocacy organization rooted in Quaker values working to advance social justice policy on Capitol Hill.
1: Okay. Now, what is happening with the debt ceiling negotiations?
5: So, President Biden and Speaker McCarthy reached a deal over the weekend to raise the debt ceiling, and the deal imposes some pretty stringent spending cuts on federal programs. The House is probably going to vote and then the Senate will follow. And the goal is to get this to the president's desk before the country defaults on June 5th. So I'll say it's just a shame that we're even in this situation. Members of Congress should really never be threatening the full faith and credit of the United States and its ability to pay its bills in order to extract harmful cuts to programs and those programs that are really serving those most in need. But right now, the number one priority is really to avoid default.
1: Okay. Now, what are some of the crucial spending cuts that are being proposed, and what kind of trickle-down implication does that have for all of us?
5: Yeah, good question. So this debt ceiling deal, the Fiscal Responsibility Act, it's not really something to celebrate. It does make some painful cuts. One of the things it does is it makes it so that older adults who are really struggling to find work, it really limits their ability to get nutrition assistance. And this is a real shame because we know that older Americans who lose their job, it's a lot harder to get work, it takes a lot longer to get rehired. But if you don't have a new job within three months, you lose your nutrition assistance for the next three years. And then a lot of people will also lose benefits just because of the red tape and the additional bureaucratic reporting requirements even if they are working so that's one of the harmful cuts and then the other big thing that the this deal does is it cuts almost all other government spending except for the Pentagon budget so it sort of shrinks the overall size of the pie that we have for other federal government programs like education childcare job training transportation nutrition assistance housing assistance everything else is really going to be fighting for a very limited amount of dollars.
1: Okay. And what would you propose as a better solution?
5: Well, right now, I mean, we can't default. So Congress needs to raise the debt ceiling. But after this deal likely passes, we need to make sure that A, we're never in this position again. Congressional leaders need to make sure that we are never in a position where the full faith and credit of the U.S. and the global economy is being held hostage to be able to get policies through that actually couldn't pass through the regular legislative process. So I think that's one thing that needs to happen after we get through and raise the debt ceiling here. And then the other piece is that there's going to be a really limited size of the pie to be dividing up for a large number of federal programs. And Congress is really going to have to be prioritizing, particularly funding for those programs that serve individuals who are most in need.
1: Okay. Now where can listeners go if they want to learn more about this or maybe even take action and help make a difference?
5: Sure. Yeah. Our website, fcnl.org for the Friends Committee on National Legislation that has a lot of updated information about what's happening and how you can contact your members of Congress to make a difference. It's really important that members of Congress hear from their constituents as this vote moves forward and, and certainly throughout the coming months to come.
1: Okay, perfect. So fcnl.org is the website to go to. It stands for Friends Committee on National Legislation, fcnl.org. And you can find out more information about what's going on with debt ceiling negotiations, and how you can contact your members of Congress directly. And Amelia, I want to thank you so much for being here and letting us know exactly what's going on and what people can do to help out and get involved. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you.
6: I'm Tumani. When I was younger, I may have did some stupid things. I committed some crimes. He even got shot, but I'm not a criminal. That's right, I'm Jamal. I work for youth
0: advocate programs. Yeah, I was Tumani's advocate, helping him stay out of jail, stay in the neighborhood, get a job, and work hard to see a better future for himself. If you have a change of mindset, you can
6: have a change of action. As a little kid, I experienced trauma and I acted out. Made some mistakes, but I'm not a mistake. No, she's a good student and a great kid. As Jalen's Yap advocate, I'm always here for her. With the youth advocate programs,
7: I was able to connect with Jalen.
8: YAP is a community-based alternative to youth incarceration, congregate placement, and neighborhood violence. After completing our program, 86% of participants were arrest-free. YAP works.
6: And now, I'm a YAP advocate, helping kids like me find a better way.
8: Youth advocate programs. Others talk
5: social change. We make it happen. Learn how at yapinc.org.
1: I'm Heather Vale, and this is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Dr. Diana W. Bianchi, Director of the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health. Every 24 minutes in this country, a baby is born with opioid withdrawal. New data from the National Institutes of Health shows that a new approach reduces hospital stays and need for medication. Dr. Bianchi, thank you so much for being here today.
4: My pleasure, Heather.
1: So, what exactly is the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health?
4: The Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health, otherwise known as NICHD, is one of the 27 institutes and centers at the National Institutes of Health. Our focus is on children, people of reproductive age, and people with physical and intellectual disabilities.
1: Okay, now what does your research show about the care of opioid exposed newborns?
4: So, the research was performed by investigators in two networks. We funded the research, and the research has important implications for babies who are born with opioid withdrawal symptoms.
1: Okay, now every 24 minutes seems like a lot. So, why is this issue so prevalent?
4: Well, there are many reasons for why pregnant women are taking opioids, and that probably will take me a long time to explain. But the key thing is that these women do get medical care such as methadone or buprenorphine during their pregnancy, which can result in a healthier baby when born.
1: Okay, so what is the Eat Sleep Console approach?
4: So for the past 50 years, 5.0, babies have been treated for their neonatal opioid withdrawal symptoms with a scoring system that's quite subjective and relies on usually the nurse observing the baby's symptoms, whether the baby is sneezing, whether the baby is having diarrhea, whether the baby is jittery or having seizures. Those symptoms are put into a scoring system and that determines whether the baby is treated with opioids to reduce the symptoms of withdrawal. The new eat, sleep, and console approach really relies on comfort care, putting the baby in a lower stimulus environment, such as a darkened room with less noise, and involving ideally the mother, but other caregivers directly involved in the baby's care, with skin-to-skin contact, swaddling, rocking, allowing the baby to feed whenever he or she would like to and encouraging breastfeeding, as well as letting the baby sleep as long as the baby wants to sleep. That's the eat, sleep, and console approach.
1: Okay, so instead of giving more opioids to deal with opioid withdrawal, it's a more natural approach.
4: Correct. Now, that's not to say the babies don't get medication. If they need it, if this eat, sleep, and console approach does not calm the baby and allow the baby to function, then medication is used. But in this study, the results showed that the babies treated with the eat, sleep, and console approach needed significantly less opioid medication. Furthermore, the babies were medically ready for discharge about a week before the babies who were treated with the previous scoring approach.
1: Wow, that's great. So what are the symptoms of opioid withdrawal in an infant that allows the doctors to know this is what's going on?
4: It's generally that these babies are jittery. So, you know, if you touch a baby who's not been exposed to opioids, generally they don't recoil and they don't start shaking. These babies are very sensitive to touch. Again, they might have seizures. They're very hard to console. They cry a lot. They can't settle down. They have GI disturbances and they they just, they can't calm down essentially is what it is.
1: Okay. Now, if a mother gives birth to an infant who's going through opioid withdrawal, can they request the eat sleep console approach, or are they at the mercy of whatever that institution wants to do?
4: Well, interestingly, in a previous study funded also by the NIH, it was shown that each hospital had a completely different approach. And that's one of the problems that this study was trying to solve. We really need a national Standard of care. Now, that being said, the eat, sleep, and console approach was adopted by many nurseries around the country since 2014. However, it had never been studied in particular to see if there were any negative effects. Would babies be discharged prematurely? Would babies have any complications not receiving medications for withdrawal? Now that this study is out, we anticipate that it will be evaluated by professional societies and hopefully will be incorporated into national guidelines for care.
1: Okay. Perfect. So, where can listeners go to learn more about this issue?
4: Well, we have a website about Eat, Sleep, and Console. It's heal.nih.gov forward slash ESC
1: that stands for Eat, Sleep, and Console. Okay, perfect. So heal.nih.gov ESC is the website to go to. ESC stands for Eat, Sleep, Console. Heal.nih.gov slash ESC. And Dr. Bianchi, I want to thank you so much for being here and letting us know about the research that's going on and how it can make a difference and the amazing findings that you've got happening there. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much,
4: Heather.
5: When a parent struggles with addiction or dies from a drug overdose, what happens to their children? Far too many end up in foster care, unable to ever return to their birth homes because it's simply not safe. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is fighting the clock so that teens don't age out of foster care, leaving them at a higher risk of addiction and other negative outcomes that can happen to a child without the love and stability of a permanent family. Learn more at DaveThomasFoundation.org.
3: Charlie did not die from an overdose. Charlie was poisoned.
8: Websites and social media selling fake medicines may look legitimate, but they're not.
3: He died in less than 15 minutes after taking the pill.
8: Any medication not purchased from a licensed pharmacy could be deadly.
7: No other family should go through this. It's just horrific.
8: Go to safe.pharmacy. Learn about fake medicine on social media. And if an online pharmacy is safe.
1: I'm Heather Vale, and you're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Dr. Gregory Mattingly, board-certified psychiatrist and principal investigator in clinical trials for Midwest Research Group. He's worked on over 200 clinical trials focusing on ADHD, anxiety disorders, major depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia. Dr. Mattingly, thank you so much for being here today.
9: Glad to be with you.
1: So let's talk about ADHD. What exactly is it? What does it stand for?
9: You know, ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is the most common neurologic disorder in children here in the United States and around the world. It's about 8 to 10% of kids here in the United States. And it presents quite often with kids, you know, getting frustrated in school, not being able to focus, being fidgety, being restless, being impulsive. One of the things we didn't talk about though in the past was is that ADHD doesn't go away for most of our kids. Most of them are going to continue to have it as their adolescence, as they go off to university, get, they get that first job, or as they become a parent. ADHD sticks with 80 to 90% of our kids as they go into adulthood.
1: Wow. Now, when I was a kid, we heard a lot about ADD, but I don't really hear that term anymore. Has it changed?
9: Yeah. We, we kind of put the two together. We used to talk about attention deficit with or without hyperactivity. And we know most people have a little bit of both. Most people have difficulties concentrating, they're a little restless, they're a little fidgety. And so we call it all ADHD at this point.
1: Okay. Now, why did cases of ADHD go up during the pandemic?
9: You know, ADHD itself didn't go up, but our recognition and diagnosis of it went up during the pandemic. And so you know if you're sitting at home and you're having to do virtual learning, if you're sitting at home and you're having to work virtually for remotely, all of a sudden you realize, man, you know, I'm having a hard time concentrating, I get distracted. Maybe an adult says, this is the same stuff I used to deal with as a kid. And I used to blame my coworkers and the people around me for being distracted, and now I realize it's me and I have a hard time focusing. So that led a lot of parents to bring their kids in, they were watching their kids trying to learn and saw them struggling. And a lot of adults who had kids with ADHD coming in themselves saying, listen, could I have the same thing that my child has?
1: Mm, Okay. Now, how is ADHD typically treated?
9: So two two different things that go into treatment with ADHD, and we call it kind of holistic treatment. But number one is going to be finding the right medication treatment option. So finding a treatment that helps you to concentrate, focus, not get distracted, The other part of that then is learning lifestyle things that help you to be successful within your life. How to stay organized, how to meet my daily demands, how to do things and not get overwhelmed by distractions around me. So, you know, medicine tend to be a foundation in the same way that if you had, you know, you were nearsighted and it was hard to focus with your vision, getting glasses or contacts is usually one of the treatment options. In this case, that's the medication. Then we go to, okay, how do I help to make lifestyle changes for my child, for myself? That helped me to be more successful learning those tips and tricks to be successful in my daily life
1: what are a few of the tips and tricks that people could use to make lifestyle changes
9: a hundred percent so just like anything else plan ahead to be successful so if i know that my kids have a hard time being forgetful in the morning as they're getting ready to go to school you pack that backpack before you go to school you pack it the night before you make sure everything's in its place if i tend to be kind of scattered and distracted I make sure i organize things i use an organizational tool a binder i take notes i do things like that for myself for my adults leaving reminders from themselves you know a lot of my adults with adhd if you walk in their house you'll find sticky notes in places don't forget your wallet don't forget your checkbook making sure instead of just putting my keys wherever i want i hang my key on a key ring so tomorrow morning when i have to get ready to go to work i'm not running around the house with my hair on fire trying to find where i forgot my keys
1: Okay, so those are some great tips for the lifestyle side of the treatment coin. Now, what about the meds? Why is there a medication shortage?
9: So medications, as we talked about during COVID, the diagnosis of ADHD did go up by about 10 to 20% and medications were in a pretty fixed supply. So if you have an increased demand with a fixed supply, what happens is you wind up with a shortage. In particular, where we run up with shortages, the short acting stimulants and in particular Adderall. And that shortage is probably not going away. In part, that's because the trend has been with ADHD to try to move away from short-acting stimulants that you take two or three times a day, to think about once daily treatment options that you take once a day. So a once daily stimulant or a once daily non-stimulant, instead of having to take things two or three times and remembering to take it throughout the day.
1: Okay. So is that an option? People can just switch over to the once a day medication and not worry about the shortage of the short acting stimulants?
9: I think this is where you have to talk to your clinician, whoever you're working with for your ADHD and say, listen, here's where ADHD shows up in my life. Let's talk about treatment options that may meet those needs. So we have once daily long acting amphetamines, which is what Adderall is, but we have those in a long acting version. There's a lot of those versions things such as Vyvanse and various versions of those. We have long acting methylphenidates such as generic Concerta that's out there. And we have a variety of non-stimulants. There's four non-stimulants, two of which are approved for adults, a and Calberry, specifically approved for adults with ADHD.
1: Okay. And then as far as the short acting stimulants that are currently in shortage, can't they just make more?
9: You know, I, I don't think that's gonna happen. These things tend to have, you know, kind of set quantities up front. And I think as the trend has been to move away from short acting stimulants, I think there's kind of an urge to say, listen, could there be maybe safer, more appropriate options that are once daily that may meet the needs of your patients? So I think that shortage of the short acting stimulants, unfortunately, I think is going to be with us for quite a while.
1: Okay. Now, if a patient has not had a chance to meet with their doctor and talk about different treatment options, if they miss a dose of medicine that they're currently prescribed, how does that impact them?
9: It's just like any other health condition. You know, if I miss a dose of my blood pressure medicine, blood pressure tends to go up. If I miss my asthma inhaler, I tend to maybe wheeze if I'm prone to wheezing. Same thing is true with ADHD medicines. If you forget a dose, you're going to have rebound or breakthrough symptoms. So you're gonna have difficulties with being distracted, difficulties with focus. Maybe a kid who gets frustrated in class because he knows he's having a hard time staying focused. He's distracted by noises around him. Maybe an adult who comes home and gets overwhelmed, trying to take care of not just herself, but a mom trying to take care of her kids who gets distracted and now gets overwhelmed. So those symptoms will tend to come back. That's the importance of finding a treatment that will be available for you going forward and a treatment that meets you know your needs throughout the day. Is ADHD with me in the morning? What's it like in the afternoon? What's it like in the evening when I'm trying to get my own life organized?
1: Okay. Now, if someone wants to talk to their doctor and address this and maybe switch from a short acting stimulant to a longer acting stimulant, not only because of the shortage, but because, as you mentioned, it's more effective perhaps, what are the questions that people should ask their doctor to bring up the conversation and make sure that they end up with the right treatment for them?
9: I think it's important to let your doctor, your clinician know where ADHD affects you in your life. You know, how does it affect you in the morning as you're getting ready for things? How does it affect you throughout the day? How does it affect you in the evening? We used to think of ADHD as just being kind of a school or work condition. And we know that's not the case. You know, when you're driving a car, when you're out with people socially, when you're trying to organize your life and your kid's life, ADHD is kind of always along for the ride. So talking about where the symptoms show up in your life, where you're having frustrations, letting your clinician kind of get to know you. So they may point out some places that you didn't realize that ADHD was making a difference. It's not a one size fits all equation. We have a lot of tools out there for people with ADHD. And I find that I wind up using all of those tools for my various patients that I take care of with ADHD.
1: Okay, perfect. Where can listeners go to learn more about this issue?
9: I'll give you a couple of good resources. We have a great advocacy group for individuals with ADHD. It's called CHAD, and they make an, a magazine each month called Attitude. It's free. It's great. It's a great resource. I'm the president elect for the American ADHD Association, APSARD, APSARD.org. And there's a lot of resources and places that you can go to to learn more about ADHD if you go to APSARD.org as well.
1: Perfect. All right. So once again, Apsard.org, that's A-P-S-A-R-D.org is a great place to go to for more research. A-P-S-A-R-D.org, apsard.org. And Dr. Mattingly, I want to thank you so much for being here and bringing this to our attention, letting us know some of the tips and tricks that people can put to use and more importantly, how to address this with their clinician and make sure that they get the right treatment if they have ADHD or even if they know a family member with ADHD. This is some amazing information you've given us today. So, I really appreciate your time. Thank you.
6: Thank you. As Americans, we celebrate all the things that make us different. So what is the thing that connects us? The thing that makes us Americans? It's simple. It's our shared belief that we are Americans. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. That belief that we each can be who we are and live the life we dream, in harmony with one another, in our system written in the words of the Constitution. Know your Constitution. It's who you are, it's who we are.
8: Unity, it's an American thing. From AmericanThing.org.
1: You're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vail, and I'm speaking with Kathy Stokes, Director of Fraud Prevention Programs at AARP. A new AARP Fraud Watch Network survey shows the majority of Americans believe scams have hit a crisis level. Kathy, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Heather. So how big a problem are scams in the U.S.?
7: We believe that it's hit epidemic proportions, and according to our survey, uh, most people are starting to recognize that. When we look at data from the Federal Trade Commission from 2022, we see 2.5 million fraud reports and $9 billion in losses. That's just last year, and that's just what's reported, and we know that a lot of people don't even ever report these crimes, so that's just the tip of the iceberg.
1: Yeah, wow, that's a lot. So what is the best way to know that something is a scam? Well,
7: you know, um, scammers have always known that if they can get their target into a heightened emotional state, let's say fear your grandchild is in jail, or excitement, you've just won $2 million in a car, any kind of heightened emotional state like that puts us in a place in our brains where we have a hard time accessing logical thinking. It's just simple brain physiology. And if they can get us up there, then they can make us believe anything they want to tell us. So if you get a call, a, an email, a text out of the blue that puts you into that uh, state of fear or excitement right away, know that that is the sign that this person is trying to deceive you.
1: Okay. What are some of the current scams that are happening?
7: Well, the biggest one, the most concerning one to me involves cryptocurrency investments. And it can be something as simple as you get a text message to you, Heather, that says, hey, Kathy, are we meeting up tonight? And your response is, I'm sorry, you have the wrong number, I'm not Kathy. That can be all that criminal needs to begin a discussion, a conversation that turns into sort of a fun conversation over time that turns into, hey, by the way, Heather, I've made a ton of money on crypto investing and I can show you how to do that. And they end up, you know, making this person believe that they're investing in crypto and it's entirely fraudulent. When they go to try to get all of their earnings out, they find that they cannot and it is destroying generational wealth. And people are, are being very, very, very hurt by it.
1: Besides crypto, what are the current scams that you see a lot of?
7: Well, we see a lot of online romance scams, and it's not just the dating apps. We see it on you know social media. Or you could be out playing uh, Words with Friends or Scrabble and somebody sidles up to you and ends up having a conversation that turns into uh, a fake romance and they start asking for money and that uh, money is going out the window, sadly. Uh, We still see uh, a lot of uh, impersonation scams, mostly of businesses these days. You hear Amazon being used, that name being used, and it's not Amazon that's calling you and saying there's a problem with your account. They don't do that, but they're getting you into that fear of, oh my God, somebody just used my account and I've lost all this money. I've got to deal with it. So those impersonation scams are, are sky high.
1: And they also impersonate charities and the IRS.
7: Yeah, I think we're seeing a little bit less of the IRS scam and a little bit less of uh, the Social Security imposter scam, but they'll continue to pop up. I mean, I understand that some criminals were using artificial intelligence to mimic Joe Biden's voice, to leave robocalls for people to say that there's a new government grant program and you're eligible, call this number, and it's entirely fraudulent.
1: Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you mentioned cryptocurrency, but what about other payment methods like gift cards, peer to peer payment apps, Venmo, Cash App, and that sort of thing? Are they still being used for fraud?
7: Yeah, they sure are. The good news, though, from our survey is that 75% of Americans tell us that they know it's fraud when someone tries to get you to pay for some urgent obligation using a gift card. However, when we look at the Federal Trade Commission data, there was still $228 million in reported losses to gift card fraud. So we have a lot more work to do there. And then with, with the cash apps, uh, the Venmos and the Zells, not a lot of people know that they don't carry the same credit card protections. So if you are convinced by somebody to send money using one of those applications, that money has gone and you're not getting it
5: back.
1: Wow. Okay. So you mentioned the reported scams, but you also said that a lot of people still don't report the scams. Why don't more people report the scams when they experience them?
7: You know, our society has this unfortunate tendency to blame the fraud victim for having experienced the fraud. Like that you didn't know something or you did something wrong or, you know, a lot of ageism there, assuming that because you're older and you're a victim that it's cognitive decline. And none of that is true. The criminals are really good at what they do. It is a crime, but we treat it differently in society and it served to deprioritize it. So we don't have a meaningful law enforcement response. So we need more people reporting so that it's better understood how bad the situation is. We need law enforcement to investigate these cases. Even if it's assumed to be from another country, those criminal enterprises have people on the ground here in the United States that can be arrested. And if we continue to disrupt the fraud business model, we're going to disrupt fraud in the United States.
1: Okay. And what platforms are currently the trendiest among the criminals? We've seen scams through phone, through text, through email. What are they using now?
7: Yeah, I think text is probably the most rapidly growing. But, you know, people are still getting robocalls and, and there there are a ton of scams coming through that. Last year, it's reported we still got over 50 billion robocalls last year. That's with a B. And so uh, we we have to beware on all of our communication channels, and we, we just can't trust the call coming in. We can't trust the text coming in. We can't l- click on links from email or text because they might be fraudulent. It's really unfortunate state of affairs, but we have to be on guard and understand that fraud is everywhere but... If we know about the specific scams, we're far less likely to engage with them. So Heather, with you talking about this to your audience, um, with other people sharing what they heard today, we can stop this. We just need to be talking about it more so that people are aware of what's happening.
1: Okay. Now, when we talk about robocalls, obviously, a lot of the robocalls will be scams, but also legitimate, let's say, collection services or banks or credit cards might use robocalling as well. So how do we identify whether it's actually legitimate when we pick up the phone?
7: Well, it's really hard to. You may get a call that looks like it's from your bank or from your doctor's office or from your neighbor but the, uh, the skill of the criminal allows them to fake that number. So, what I try to tell people is, if you're not absolutely sure who is calling you, if that caller is coming through and it's not on your normal list of people that you have contact with, let your answering machine or your voicemail, whatever you have, do the work of screening those for you. Quite often, if it's a if it's a uh, criminal calling a criminal robocall, they won't even leave a message. But if they do, you can listen to it and and try thinking about what that transaction is and wondering, you know, would the Social Security Administration really call me personally to say there was a problem with my Social Security account? I don't think so. And instead of calling that number back or pressing one you'll go to the social security administration online ssa.gov find the phone number and call that the criminals will leave you a, a fake number or um, they'll they'll send you a link that's to a fake uh webpage so you just have to really be on guard
1: okay good advice so where can listeners go if they want to learn more information about fraud or even learn about reporting it so that we can get more data on when fraud is actually happening
7: Yes. Well, we have a great website at aarp.org slash network. One of the things I like to tell people is to sign up for our biweekly watchdog alerts by email or text. It keeps you mindful that the fraud is out there. And when you read something like that, share it, you know, talk with your parents and your brothers and sisters and friends. The more we talk about it, the more protected we all are.
1: Okay, awesome. So aarp.org slash Network is the website to go to aarp.org slash Network. And Kathy, I want to thank you so much for being here and letting us know what the current state of scams is, how to protect ourselves and what to do if we suspect fraud. So I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you.
7: I appreciate you. Thank you, Heather. Victor deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in 2003. At four in the morning, my phone rang. They said, I regret to inform you that your husband was wounded in action. Victor sustained a moderate traumatic brain injury. I was doing school full time, and I was also then caring for Victor. One of the most important elements of caregiving is taking care of yourself. I just didn't want to forget that I also had goals and that I also had a life. What I did is I challenged Victor to meet me halfway. There are almost 6 million military and veteran caregivers across the nation. We have our own journey and we can fulfill that journey at the same
4: time that we are helping our loved one. Visit aarp.org caregiving for a free military veteran's guide to navigate your caregiving journey and better care for your loved one and yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council.
1: I'm Heather Vale, and this is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Bonnie Sinclair, co-author of the new book, USA RV Adventures, 25 Epic Routes. Bonnie and Grant Sinclair are high school teachers and RV buffs who have camped in 43 states and visited more than 275 National Park Services sites along the way. Bonnie, thank you so much for being here today.
8: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So what made you and Grant start RVing? Oh, we just love traveling and we had done road trips and kind of alternating between hotels and tent camping to save a little money and finally just decided that we were ready for something a little uh, simpler with an RV where you just have one bed every night. And also it allowed us to take our cat with us. So that was a big push for us at the time.
1: Yeah, awesome. Awesome. Now, it seems like there's a lot of various RVs available out there. So how does someone choose the right RV for them?
8: That is the big question. Um, like I said, there's a wide range of drivable, you know, motorhome RVs or tow-behind campers, big, small you name it, there is something out there. It really just depends on what your preference is and how many people you have. You know, you don't want to fit a family of five in a camper van. You may or may not want a huge Class A for just two people. It just depends on what you want to do. The uh, the bigger RVs obviously offer more room, more comfort, more things to take with you, but those are a little bit harder to park, a little bit harder to to get into small places. So it's really just all about, you know, what experience, you want both in the RV and where you can take it.
1: Okay. Now that's an interesting point you bring up about the parking. And I imagine it's a little more difficult to drive an RV than a car, for example. Do we need a special license or is it just a regular normal license to drive an RV?
8: Most places you do not need a special license. i think there are a few states that for the biggest RVs do require something but most of the time you do not need anything special.
1: Nice. Okay. Yeah. So besides being able to take the cat along or the dogs, <laughs> yes. <laughs> what's the best thing about taking an RV road trip?
8: You know, for us it was you're in your house, right? You know, an RV really is a second home or a first home for some people. And so you've got your house, your bed, your Kitchen, your bathroom right there. You're not packing and unpacking every day, you know, into different hotels. You can see lots of different places. And then you're right there in the outdoors, right? So you've got that camping experience. I know a lot of people may not think they want to camp, but you know, you've got all those comforts of home right there with you. So you really do have the best of both worlds.
1: Nice. Okay. Now, one of the epic routes that you featured in the book is the Nevada Extraterrestrial Highway. Why do you recommend that route?
8: Oh, that is just such an interesting route that most people probably wouldn't think about. You know, we generally think about the trees and the mountains and you don't get quite as much of that, although there are some, um, but it's really just different. And it's, a, it's a, you know, the desert Southwest is just its own place. And we loved it. We love being out there really with no crowds. Um, it's one of those places where you can, for the most part, get away and really just enjoy being outside. But you
1: have to make sure that you're fully tanked up before you head into <laughs> the hinterland, right? <laughs> that
8: Yes, we actually um, on that exact route almost ran into an issue when we were driving across the extraterrestrial highway and the the uh, gas mileage increased our gas consumption along the way. So we coasted into I think it was Caliente, Nevada with about two miles to empty. And that was terrifying. (laughs) So uh, even after doing the math and giving yourself buffer, give yourself even more of a buffer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so besides the fuel situation, what else do people have to keep in mind if they're traveling on those remote highways?
8: You really, you need to be prepared for anything, right? If you get a flat tire, you need to be able to take care of that yourself because the chances of somebody coming along to help you are not going to be great. You'll probably see somebody eventually, but it it seriously could be an hour or two and they may or may not be able to help. So having anything you need with you, whether that's you know, stuff to change a tire or just extra water to be, you know, stranded on the side of the road for a little while, um, anything you might need, you you've got to have with you, and you've got to have the tools to take care of whatever might arise.
1: Okay, awesome. So obviously the Nevada Extraterrestrial Highway is relatively accessible from Las Vegas. But if someone is starting out from Las Vegas in their RV, what other routes are good options?
8: So we have our grand route, which is the big route across the, uh, you know, a lot of the big popular national parks that we start and end in Las Vegas. We do that as one huge, like 33-day loop from Vegas. Of course, you could start it anywhere, but that that's our preferred start. There's also the desert parks of California, those Southern California parts of Death Valley, Mojave. Those are easily accessed from Vegas. You could also go a little bit further east over to the Grand Canyon and hit, you know, some of the Northern Arizona or even Southern Utah. Those are all easily easy to do from Vegas.
1: Nice. Perfect. Okay. And then what are some of the must-see attractions and landmarks across the country? Because
8: once you're in the RV, I mean, you might as well keep going, right? Right. You know, it's really literally anything you want to see um remote places are best so national parks state parks you know we love Yosemite and Yellowstone and the Black Hills of South Dakota and getting farther east into Michigan, you know, but you can take your camper to Disney World if you want, you know, you can take your camper up to Acadia in Maine. So that really anywhere you want to go, we don't recommend going into large cities with your camper, but you could certainly camp right outside of a city and then, you know, take a smaller car into town if you wanted to. Okay. Okay.
1: And where are the best places to park overnight and sleep?
8: You definitely need a campground that you really, for the most part, cannot just pull into a rest area and stay. A lot of, you know, even. Uh, camping in a parking lot. There's a few places that let you do that. Some Walmarts you can camp overnight. Um, Cracker Barrel is another popular one where you can a lot of times camp overnight, but sometimes that varies by local regulations. So just because you can camp in a Walmart in Colorado doesn't mean you can do it in Florida. You really have to do the research and that varies state by state, city by city, and even store by store, just what their experiences have been. So we definitely recommend campgrounds. um, and you may occasionally find a parking lot or something else random where you could stay.
1: And I think the campgrounds probably offer a, a more relaxing experience where you can actually yes. go out and chill.
8: <laughs> yes, you can yes. actually camp versus just sleep right. in your RV. You
1: don't want to hang out in the parking lot. I mean, no,
3: you don't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Awesome. So where can people learn
8: more about your travel adventures or buy the book, US RV Adventures? So the book is available pretty much anywhere books are sold. So any major online retailer or in stores, they're all going to have the book. And then our website is wanderfilledlife.com. We have information about the routes and the destinations that are included in the book and many other sites that simply didn't fit into the book.
1: Okay, perfect. And I do have to mention that the book is not just a book, it's actually a travel guide. It's got lots of photos, it's got little tips and bullet points it's got a fold out map at the back like it's really awesome
8: yes it is step by step our goal was to you know let somebody pick up that book and have a trip right there even if they don't follow it step by step it's got pretty much everything they need to build off of that and make a trip their own
1: Perfect. Okay. So once again, the book USA RV Adventures 25 Epic Roots is available at all major booksellers. And if you want to check out the blog, the website that Grant and Bonnie do, it's wanderfilledlife.com, wanderfilledlife.com. And they've got plenty of articles there and lots of things to learn if you want to go on your own epic RV adventures Bonnie, I want to thank you so much for being here and letting people know about the options. And you and Grant have obviously done a lot of this and now you're experts at it. So thank you for sharing your expertise and letting us know how to live the RV life. I appreciate it.
8: Thank you. It was a pleasure chatting with you. When students struggle in school because they are hungry.
3: Or fall behind because they lack school supplies or clean clothing.
8: Being greeted at the start of every school day by the smile of a caring adult can make all the difference.
3: Especially someone from the community.
8: Someone who knows firsthand the obstacles students might be facing.
3: And what it will take to help them thrive.
8: At Communities in Schools, our site coordinators surround students with a community of support and remain by their side
3: to ensure that they have everything they need to engage in learning
8: and succeed in school and in life.
3: Access to technology, learning materials,
8: and even one-to-one mentor support.
3: We are there for them, all day, every day. This is what Communities in Schools is all about.
8: Going all in for kids, in schools, in communities, and beyond.
3: To learn more, visit communitiesinschools.org. That's communitiesinschools.org.
1: I'm Heather Vale with the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show, and this is your community events calendar for nonprofit initiatives and charity events around the Valley. Monday's Dark with Mark Chinook is a bi monthly musical fundraising party at the Space, with each event raising $10,000 for a specific charity in 90 minutes. Upcoming shows include this Monday, June 5th at 8 p.m. benefiting the National Association of Women in Construction and Monday, June 19th at 8 p.m. benefiting the Nevada Wheelchair Foundation. Get tickets or find out more details at mondaysdark.com. That's mondaysdark.com. Communities and Schools of Nevada is holding its annual graduation campaign to support graduating high school seniors. Donations of any amount will help ensure Nevada students have the resources they need to graduate successfully. You can donate or find out more at cisnevada.org/graduate. That's cisnevada.org/graduate. And Chef Pete Gioni's running his Cooking for a Cure fundraising campaign with a goal of raising $100,000 over 10 weeks to support the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. You can donate at the various partner restaurants or directly through his website until next Saturday, June 10th. Find out more, learn about healthy eating for cancer patients, see the list of participating restaurants, or make a donation at cookingforacure.com.